Welcome to the Investor Download, the podcast about the themes driving markets and the economy now and in the future. I'm your host, David Brett. James Montier is an author, a member of GMO's asset allocation team and a partner at the firm, among many other roles. He's also written the rules on the seven sins of fund management. He's a great raconteur, mixes humour with a powerful message, and he's spoken with my colleagues on the Value Perspective podcast recently. In this episode, we'll use an excerpt of that conversation, which concentrates on the seven sins. It's a philosophy that applies to all investors, not just fund managers. They're even more relevant today, particularly given the new era of markets and the economy we're entering. If you want to hear the unabridged interview, search for The Value Perspective wherever you get your podcasts. Otherwise, we hope you enjoy. So, yeah, The Seven Sins, that was that was a, a collection I put out in well, 2004, 2005, and was a, um, an attempt to, to kind of analyse the average investment process and where I thought people were, were making mistakes. And probably the biggest single mistake was kind of the massive over-reliance on forecasting. And one of my favorite quotes comes from, from Lao Tzu, the, uh, the sixth century uh, BC poet, who said, those who have knowledge don't predict, those who predict don't have knowledge. Um, and it always struck me as weird that uh, our industry was kind of obsessed with trying to know the future, and yet the future was inherently unknowable. And I, years later, after I wrote that piece, I came across a great quote from Elroy Dimson of the LBS, who said, risk is more things can happen than will happen. And I really like that because it framed some of what I was trying to get at when I was talking about the folly of forecasting, which is, you know, history always looks beautiful and linear, right? It is, oh, this is the, the sequence of events. But at any point in time, we could have branched out in, in a myriad different ways and trying to, to choose which of those paths we were going to go down is is now impossible. And it doesn't matter whether you look at economists and, and their inability to forecast growth and inflation, or whether you're talking to analysts and their inability to forecast earnings. There's, there's just no evidence that people can forecast well. And so putting that at the heart of an investment approach, I thought was was kind of nuts. It's why would you, you know, and that was kind of the, the typical investment process. It was, hey, we start by forecasting you know, GDP or inflation, and then we we take that down into stocks and sectors, and we forecast earning. And I was like, why? Why would you put something that is so deeply flawed at the heart of your approach? And so that was probably the first and most obvious uh, of the, the, the seven sins, that kind of overconfidence and over-optimism that, that really drive our behavior. It made me wonder why people do that. And then, then I came across the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a kind of neat little uh, psychological um, set of results, which shows that the people who, who are worst at forecasting also lack the skills to know that they are the worst at forecasting. Um, so they are both, you know, unaware and appalling. Um, and maybe that's a blissful combination. I don't know. Um, but it, it's it's um, that kind of thing is it's just mad to me. So that was that was the first of the sins that I kind of really wanted to take on. And I looked at, at kind of the degree of over-optimism and overconfidence that people had. And I came across this beautiful study on, on two different groups of people, weathermen and doctors. Uh, and weathermen, it uh, turns out, uh, are really, really good at knowing they are bad. 
right? I mean, you know, particularly here in the UK where we live on this tiny island and we get blown around all over the place and, you know, who the hell knows what the weather's going to be tomorrow. And weathermen are therefore pretty well calibrated. They know they're pretty shit. But doctors are a terrifying bunch of people. These guys are so sure about everything. And that that was – and the reason is they don't get feedback, right? You know, if you, if you go to the doctor – and and you know he gives you a diagnosis and then you you die two weeks later he may not even know and so that lack of feedback is is very clear and weathermen just they they like, oh yeah look we were wrong again you know it's fine I got drenched I should have taken a brolly I didn't damn you know the feedback is is really immediate for doctors that's not the case and then there was a study that showed that the one people who made doctors look like they were unsure turned out to be investors. Uh, and investors are even more confident than doctors about everything. And I, I, that was just staggering because, you know, there are days when I get up and I'm not sure that I even exist, let alone anything else. You know, I could be a brain in a jar for all I know, uh, spend spend time watching The Matrix, right? And it, it's a terrifying prospect that people are so sure about stuff. And so I was, that really struck me as a very odd thing to to kind of really base your investment approach on. You know, I know the future. Really? Great. Uh, I sure as hell don't. And if I don't, how do I build an investment process that doesn't rely on me doing that? Uh, so, sorry, that was that was sin number one. I'll try and be briefer on the others because otherwise we, we may take up the entire time we have. So uh, then I, I kind of moved on from uh, that, that folly of forecasting into some other areas. And in particular, I started looking at the idea that effectively the – uh, the people thought that that more knowledge was was better knowledge, and this obsession with with knowing more, and that struck me again as as kind of weird. I was like, well, why would I care about everything? And our industry is great at that. You know, I used to work with an analyst who was brilliant in terms of technical detail, but he was a tech analyst at the time, and he used to take a, a PC around with him, and he'd take the PC apart in front of, of, of fund managers, and he'd explain every little bit, and I'd be like, geez, wow, I never knew that's how a PC worked. Um, could he forecast for toffee? No. <laughs> could he convince these guys that they should be investing in this PC? Absolutely. And I was like, why? Why do I care about how this thing works? All I need to know is, you know, how much is the company actually worth? How much am I paying for it? Rather than, hey, look, this little chip does this. And it was it, it was just staggering. And there was this wonderful study by Paul Slovic with bookmakers. And he said to them, look, I'm going to give you various amounts of information. I want you to handicap this horse race. And what he found was their accuracy was constant, regardless of the amount of information he gave them. Uh, they, they kind of came up with the, the same degree of accuracy of their view. But what happened was as he gave them more and more information, so their confidence soared. And so all this extra information they were gathering wasn't improving their performance in the slightest. It was just making them more and more confident. And I think the same thing happens in, in our industry. You know, there's, there's this, um, my, my dad, bless him, he used to say that um, specialists were people who learn more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about nothing. Uh, <laughs> but unless you're a specialist, you're in great danger of learning less and less about more and more until you know absolutely nothing about everything. Um, and, and that was, that kind of, that always stuck with me. I love that quote. I have no idea where, he was a tremendous plagiarist. Uh, so I have no idea where he stole it from, but um, it was a great little framing. And I've always thought of myself as not a not a specialist, right? I, I know less and less about more and more. But I try and just think about what matters. You know, let's let's instead of trying to know everything about everything, let's just focus on the few things that really, really matter. And that's that's anathema to analysts, right? They 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 want to know everything about everything. 
And we like people who sound confident. The more confident somebody sounds, the more we are, are, are comfortable with them. You know, let's go back to those doctors, bless them. You know, if you're a doctor, you go and say, doctor, I've got this, you know, strange rash. And he goes, oh, yeah, oh, I, I don't know what that is. Take these and, and see if you're alive in a week. You're not going to feel so great about life. If you walk in and say, doctor, I've got this strange rash. And he goes, don't worry. I know exactly what that is. Take this. You'll be fine. You feel much better about life. Yeah. And so the, the, that, that habit of being confident, I think, is, is increased by the amount of information we have. And therefore, there's this obsession with collecting information. I'm a, a collective compulsive. You can see my office behind me. I have a tremendous amount of toys and Lego, and I, I love collecting stuff. So I know that I am prone to, to wanting to collect stuff, but I've had to train myself to make sure that collecting information isn't part of that, that obsession because it's, it's too easy to fall into. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, you're listening to the Investor Download. That takes us on to sin number three, actually. One of the ways in which people collect information is meeting companies, right? It's the, it's kind of like, it's tremendous fun and it's great to meet companies, but is there really any benefit to it? And it's far from obvious to me that most investors get any benefit from it. Why? Well, first of all, it's just an exercise in collecting information. It's that we're back to that increasing confidence rather than accuracy. Secondly, corporate managers are just as likely as the rest of us to suffer cognitive illusions. And guess what? They're going to be overconfident too. Every manager you ever meet is going to be more optimistic about their firm than they are about everybody else's firm. You know, when was the, the, the last time a firm turned up at the office and went, oh, do you know what? We're a really terrible company. Uh, we have appalling management. I wouldn't touch us with a barge pole. If they did, I'd, I'd almost certainly invest in them. Um, but they, they don't, right? They all turn up and say, oh, you know, either we're brilliant or we're on the brink of a turnaround. It's going to be great in the future. You know, they, no, they never turned up and said, you know what? We haven't got a clue. Frankly, I, I'd fire us. Yeah, it's, it just doesn't happen. So you get this hugely biased source of information. On top of that, we have a really bad habit of looking for the information that agrees with us, confirmatory bias. And that is a huge problem. So when you do meet company managements, you, you want to hear all the things you want to hear. And that, that's a major problem. So you're not collecting information in an unbiased fashion. You also, as human beings, we have this terrible tendency to obey figures of authority. And let's be honest, you know, if you get the CEO and the CFO of a company in there, they're at the top of their tree. They are a figure of authority. Therefore, there is this kind of, oh, we must doff our cap. We must, you know, they must, they're authority figures. We must do what they say. Uh, and we know that humans will do all sorts of weird things when people appear to be in a position of authority. Uh, Stan Milgram proved that with some uh, experiments where he got people to shock other people. Uh, and they were told to shock them by people wearing a lab coat. And simply the point that they were wearing their lab coat made them a figure of authority, which is it's just staggering that people are, are willing to, to shock another human being with electricity on the orders of somebody wearing a white coat. Um, <laughs> it, it's staggering that people don't stop and think, yeah. Jesus, am I, am I being nice here? Should I, should I be shocking this? No, I was told to do it. Bang, let's crank it up. Um, you know, it's, where is people's thought control here? Also, there's, uh, there's the problem. We, we are actually terrible at spotting liars, right? Just think about Enron. Think about Madoff. 
and those are really extreme cases. But all the evidence says we can't tell whether somebody's lying to us or not. There's all this tremendous industry about, oh, micro-expressions and spotting lies. Most of it's complete bullshit. Uh, nobody's trained to do it anyway. And it doesn't work. Uh, so there's, there's no idea, you know, company management, oh, yeah, we're going to turn it around. Oh, great, great. You know, we're not really very good at spotting when people are lying to us. So I, I think that, you know, that was the, 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 the third of the sins was this obsession with kind of meeting company managements and wasting hours and hours of time uh, listening to effectively a, a kind of echo chamber of agreement, which to me was just a, a, a nonsense. It's like, why would you, you choose to spend your time doing that? Sin number four was um, really thinking you can outsmart everybody else, thinking you are always one step ahead, like market timing. The idea that that people could, uh, you know, pick the bottom and and uh, uh, call the top. There's just no evidence that we can do that. Ben Graham used to talk about uh, the way of, of timing and the way of pricing. Um, the way of timing is trying to be one step ahead of everybody else. And Keynes pointed out it's incredibly hard to do this. He talked about the beauty contest, right, where the objective was not there was a a set of photos and you had to pick the prettiest person. And it wasn't the the objective actually wasn't to pick the prettiest person, but to pick the person the average person would find prettiest. And when you play those kinds of games, what you find is you can do it mathematically and you find that people are really bad at being just one step ahead of everybody else. And it's the same idea when you're kind of trying to call a top or, 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 or find the bottom. It's just really hard. Why would you do it? And we've all seen those studies where you see, uh, oh, if you miss the best five days or you miss the best, uh, the worst five days, you know, the impact that can have on your investment performance is enormous. Um, and that's that's all about the way of timing, which is next to impossible. So instead, I, I long argued that we should follow the way of pricing, right? That, hey, if something's cheap, I'll buy it. Yes, it could get cheaper, but I already have a margin of safety in there. And so I, I always thought that that was a kind of a much better framing of, an investment philosophy was to say, okay, look, I know I can't time stuff and therefore I won't. I'm going to buy what's cheap, knowing it'd get cheaper and not own what's expensive, knowing it'd get more expensive. Um, the problem with doing that is, of course, everybody wants short-term results and there's that over-focus on short-termism and that can lead to to over-trading. And the average holding period for a stock is, is what, 10 months today on the, in, in the US, which is insane. You know, if we go back to uh, the 50s and 60s, it was 10 to 12 years. Now it is less than one year. I think at one point, somewhere around about 2008, it got down to, to something like six, five, six months. That's not investment. That's just speculation. That That's just absolutely insane. And I don't know anybody who can who can say anything about the next, you know, year. It's It's next to impossible. The next 12 years, okay, we can begin to think about valuation mattering. But on a one-year view, who the hell knows? So that absolute obsession with the short term and trying to be one step ahead of everybody else just made no sense to me. And trying to, to think about ways of structuring an investment process that didn't fall into that was, was really important. Get in touch with us by email at shorterspodcasts at shorters.com or visit our website, shorters.com forward slash the investor download. The next sin was was believing everything you read, right? That 
we have a really, really bad habit of, of what Talib calls the narrative fallacy, which is, is kind of believing what we read. And this goes back to a hugely uh, old debate in, in philosophy, which is between Descartes and Spinoza. And Descartes said that we kind of could hold an idea in limbo and then evaluate it. And Spinoza said, no, 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 that's wrong. The way that, that we hold ideas is we tend to believe them to be true. And then sometimes we go and check whether they actually are or not. And it turns out you can test those experiments. And Dan Gilbert did a huge amount of work in this field. And he showed that we are essentially Spinozian, that we really do believe what we read. And therefore, stories matter. And there were some, some great experiments done on um, trials. In one trial, uh, they allowed the information to, to pop up randomly through the course of a trial, as it genuinely would. In another, they plotted out a story and had the, uh, the prosecution lay out the story uh, of the, the events. Now, in both cases, the same information was revealed, but it's just the format in which it was revealed. And uh, the conviction rate was massively higher when the story was, was used, despite the fact that the same evidence appeared just randomly in the other case. And so we are suckers for a story. And so that's what our industry is, right? We're, we're, we're dream sellers. And it's it's a, a terrible reflection on us that we, we wander around you know, selling stories to people. And it's it, it, because they work, right? They're emotional. They, they make it easy to process. Um, and so people cling on to stories, which is a dreadful way of thinking. It's, it's one of the reasons I like the quants I work with, they, they, they lack any imagination. Um, and they, they don't, they don't have stories. They have numbers, right? They're like, great. I'm, I'm going to get fired off this. Interview, you know that. Um, or at least run out of friends, but I'm used to that. That's why I work from here. Most of uh, it's um, safer for me, uh, let alone them. But it, yeah, they, they just, they're like, here's the numbers. Uh, this is what matters. Uh, balls for the story. Nobody cares. But the, the average investment philosophy is all about the story and selling the story or buying the story. And it's a really, really bad way of, of kind of handling information. So that was, uh, that was another sin that I, I kind of wanted to, uh, to, to make sure that people were aware of and, and tried as hard as they, they could to steer clear of, um, which I'm pretty sure takes me uh, onto the, the final of the seven sins, uh, which was the, the kind of fallacy of group decisions. And, there is a belief that groups make better decisions than individuals. Uh, writ large, that's kind of the wisdom of crowds kind of stuff. But uh, in micro, it can be, yeah, oh, well, yeah, two heads are better than one. Well, it turns out that actually groups aren't very good at making decisions. What tends to happen is groups beyond a, a really small size, like three people can just about work. But you get much beyond three people. And what tends to happen is people stifle their own opinions. And instead, they begin to share common information because of conformity. We like to agree with people. Most people like to agree with people. I've made a, a career out of disagreeing with almost everybody. So um, perhaps I'm, I'm just a weirdo. But uh, most people like to agree with other people. Um, and so there's this habit of groups where they, they, instead of bringing kind of what you'd hope a group would do, would bring these divergent opinions together and discuss them and evaluate them. No, groups come together and they all talk about what they agree on which is a really bad way of uncovering information. And the wisdom of crowds really only holds in uh, with some very, very strict uh, provisos, like, you know, only when people have some idea about the correct answer, only when their views are entirely independent. These are the sorts of things that make the wisdom of crowds work, but they're not a good description of financial markets. 
And so we shouldn't think of financial markets as, as anything like the wisdom of crowds. They're more like the madness of crowds, where we, we see people charging off, uh, doing strange things. So for me, that, that belief that the groups and investment committees uh, were effective decision-making bodies was just flying in the face of, of, of all the evidence that we had. And so collectively, those things I thought doomed the average investment process to, to be a, a pretty ropey process. And do those seven sins still hold true today? Uh, no, I think that one of the nice things about sins like these is that they, they tend not to change that much. If anything, they, they kind of um, get worse, if anything, I, I think over time, right? There's, there's a belief that behavioural biases should be kind of, I guess, um, enumerated or removed either by us learning, which is fairly laughable, or by, you know, the, the, the efficiency of markets. Well, I don't believe in either of those two things, right? I, I wrote a paper earlier this year on, on behavioral biases, and it was really about, I called it Darwin's mind, and it was about the origins of behavioral biases. And it basically argued that the, the brain is the process, uh, is the outcome of a process of evolution. And evolution is incredibly glacial in the way it moves. And so we shouldn't expect behavioural biases to change. And when I look at the, the kind of average investment process, I still think the, the seven sins are, are, are relevant, right? The, the, the holding periods are still short. People are still forecasting. Uh, most people spend their time meeting company managements. There are still committees going on. You know, It's, it's not like anything has, has kind of altered as far as I can see which is depressing when you've written an entire book on, on why people shouldn't do these things, but good from a, a point of view of, hey, look, these things are still absolutely valid. Well, that was the show. We very much hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more, please head to schroders.com forward slash insights. And we're endeavouring to record as many of these shows in the studio on video. If you want to watch them in their full unabridged version, uh, then go to Schroder's YouTube channel. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Schroder's podcast at schroders.com. And remember, you can listen, subscribe and review the Investor Download wherever you get your podcasts. New shows drop every Thursday at 5pm UK time. But above all, keep safe and go well. Cheers. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up. And investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any funds, services or products or to adopt any investment strategy. 